This is an ABC podcast. Today, a story coming out of the US that curiously involves sport, specifically soccer, and one of Australia's most recognisable animals. Happening now, the Oregon legislature is considering a bill that would ban the sale of kangaroo parts. And saving Australia's most social but endangered reptiles, the Yakaskink. What we've done is we've put up a 25 metre by 25 metre by 1.8 high mesh fence. And that hopefully will exclude cats and foxes. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk country. But first, to northwest Queensland, where community leaders are outraged that Westpac has announced it's closing its Cloncurry bank branch. It means there'll just be one bank branch left to serve as a town of nearly 4,000 people. It's the latest in a string of branch closures announced by banks for rural and regional Australia. So what do residents think of the move? Emily Dobson has the story. Welcome to Westpac. We're here to help. For self-service telephone banking, including interest earned, press 1. Or for all other inquiries, press 2. It's the first time we've had a closure like this, that we've been confronted uh, with this sort of disrespect to our community. Greg Campbell is the Mayor of Cloncurry Shire Council. Last Friday, Westpac informed the council via email that its local branch, which opened over 100 years ago, would be closing mid-May. This is an act of disrespect to an area that kept the state pumping over COVID. It's got so much potential on top of what we already do. This is the powerhouse of the beef industry in the state. Now the the most prominent uh, company and family grazing businesses are based in Cloncurry. Despite the boom in industry, Mayor Campbell says the community felt they were the last to know about the closure. The bank talks about the decision being based on a drop-off in foot traffic, but that just doesn't cut it. You know, the branch itself is as financially strong as ever, if not stronger. And so just because we've changed our banking methods, and that's been because the bank's been pushing us that way to do online banking for the last decade, instead of walking away, do a better job. Our community deserves better. And that sentiment is echoed across the town, with fears that this decision will give other vital services the precedent to withdraw more services from Cloncurry. They've um, reduced their operating hours in, in the last probably 12 months to 10 till 2, I think, each day. So it was already um, difficult to attend to their branch as it was. Janessa Bidgood is the president of the Cloncurry Merry Muster Rodeo Festival, which draws thousands of visitors to the small town each year. Without a bricks and mortar bank branch, she says running events would become difficult. It is vital. Like we can't operate our event without cash, so it is it is incredibly important that we can access that. And and as the event changes and as things happen over the weekend, you may need more cash. Um, and it used to be good to have that that local presence. And for Cloncurry, a town that is seemingly bucking the trend as tiny towns die out across the country, this move has been called a slap in the face. You're trying to attract people here, and and I guess the the convenience of the city where everything's at your fingertips is what people enjoy. And so we want to see those things building from a from a community group's perspective and from a from a resident's perspective, we want to see those things improving, not going backwards. So it's disappointing to see that happening. And Cloncurry has an older population as well, and they they enjoy being able to deduct 
down to their local branch and see someone and still talk mm. to a, a living, breathing human. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a shame and it's not a good thing. Long-term local and well-known grazier Sam Daniels has been using Westpac in Cloncurry for 60 years. And along the way, um, we've had a great relationship with the bank and worked together to grow our business. It's just a sad day, mate, that they've decided that, uh, you know, the time's come to close the branch. They're using uh, the reason behind closing the branch is limited traffic through the door. But that has probably been a bit of a problem because the branch has actually struggled to find staff to open up. And if you're not open, well, people won't walk through the front door. A lot of the larger businesses are dealing directly with relationship managers in Brisbane. And, uh, you know, that should be taken also taken into consideration with the amount of business that gets done in our area. But it's not only that, mate. It's all the community groups that bank there, uh, all the sports clubs, you know, the shows, the races, the rodeos, all those community you know, people that volunteer to run those um, to run those events, you know, have lent on Westpac and those branches to, um, you know, give them that security around, you know, getting floats and being able to bank, you know, some substantial amount of money through the week. Uh, we're going to lose all that. A community meeting held this morning launched a petition to block the closure of the town's Westpac branch. We don't want to pick a fight with the bank either. What we what we're asking for is an opportunity to get them to understand what this region produces for their bank and puts back in their coffers. Northwest Queensland reporter Emily Dobson with that story. In a statement to the ABC, a Westpac spokesperson rather said the bank was investing in its digital services. And I quote, there have never been more ways to bank with the Westpac group and customers can expect the same great service through telephone, online, mobile and virtual banking. It went on to say that customers in Cloncurry could do their over-the-counter transactions at the post office. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Unusually, we're going to head now to the US to look into a story that involves the odd mix of kangaroos, sports brand Nike and soccer cleats. Happening now, the Oregon legislature is considering a bill that would ban the sale of kangaroo parts. It specifically takes aim at sports apparel manufacturers that use leather from the animals to make their products, like soccer cleats. The measure would affect Nike, which is based in Washington County and is the state's largest employer. Australia's commercial kangaroo industry say these moves by two United States states to ban kangaroo products is based on misinformation and false accusations. Madeleine McCusker and Lucy Cooper file this report. Australia's commercial kangaroo industry is worth more than $200 million to the country's economy and employs more than 3,000 people. Meat for human consumption and pet food are exported around the world, along with kangaroo hides for leather products. In Oregon, lawmakers want to make it illegal to buy, sell, receive or commercially exchange anything using kangaroo parts. Democratic Senator Floyd Prezansky introduced the bill, labelling the commercial hunting of kangaroos as unconscionable. But Dennis King, executive officer of the Kangaroo Industry Association of Australia, says US politicians have been influenced by activist groups with an agenda. There's a lot of misinformation being put out by 
uh, activist groups over there to politicians with all sorts of false accusations of the way we treat the animals and uh, all these false accusations of two million kangaroos slaughtered to make shoes for, for Nike. You know, that's just, just outrageous and so wrong. The proposed legislation takes aim at sports apparel manufacturers in Oregon, like Nike, the state's largest employer, who use kangaroo leather for soccer cleats. Politicians in Connecticut have followed suit, introducing a similar bill in the hope of banning kangaroo products. Dennis King says association members will soon travel to the US to meet with embassy officials and politicians to make the case for the importation of Australian kangaroo products. We're working closely with the um, the embassy in Washington. We've um, been in touch with uh, with the uh, agricultural um, minister councillor over there, and we're talking with them at the moment. The the industry is looking to actually um, go to the US and uh, and meet with um, the embassy officials over there and meet with members staff. You know, we've got a good record of uh, what we do and. And we can talk about all the, the welfare um, issues that are, that are that happen because we we have trained and, and very professional harvesters, and these um, the misinformation that's being um, put out by these uh, these groups uh, needs to be needs to be called out and it needs to be shown to be false. In 2022, the kangaroo population across Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria and Western Australia was estimated to be more than 30 million. The government quota for culling and harvesting that year was set around 4 million, or 14.3% of the known population. Commercial kangaroo harvester Dan Kempson has been in the industry for 30 years. He's frustrated by attacks he believes are misinformed. Our industry is very easily targeted. Um, we are a highly regulated industry. And, um, yeah, the facts and figures are there for everyone to read. So that's what needs to be pushed, just to show that it is a highly regulated um, industry and, and um, a well-looked-after industry. In 2021, US Congress failed in an attempt to introduce the Kangaroo Protection Act, which would have banned the sale and importation of kangaroo products. Only one U.S. state has successfully banned kangaroo products, with California passing laws in the 1970s. Dan Kempson says while bans in two U.S. states may not be felt immediately, he's worried about what comes next. I think the, the bigger picture maybe it might be a snowball effect as more states might follow suit and that could be more devastating for our industry. And it's not just export markets that could be hit if more states follow suit. Townsville-based NQ Game Meats supplies the domestic market with 55 tonnes of raw meat, including kangaroo, venison, goat and wild boar, each week. Director Edward Ramsey says there's been a spike in sales in the kangaroo market in the past year. We've seen over our counters alone, we have customers, new customers every week coming in wanting to try roo, which is a good sign. He's worried a reduction in exports could hurt domestic markets. It would it would damage the industry as in market-wise, definitely. There's a couple of other major companies that do do a lot of exporting, you know, so if they that door shut, well, they'd, boost, they'd bring them back to the domestic market, which would flood the market. He says the ripple effect from a ban could be significant. These American states, so you sort of, they jump on a bandwagon and they just don't seem to, well, they don't want to look into it too much, I don't think. If they're not controlled to a point, 
it will cause a lot of problems. Like the the graziers will be on their on everyone's back because the roos are eating all the grass for the cattle. You get you know major car accidents because they're crossing roads everywhere. That sort of stuff. It's very beneficial to keep the industry strong. Edward Ramsey from NQ Game Meets, ending that story from Madeleine McCosker and Lucy Cooper. In a moment of weakness, I said, yeah, sure, let's do 70. ABC Australia Wide. There are renewed calls for leg ropes to be made mandatory after a Byron Bay man suffered a shocking wound when he was hit by a stray surfboard. Matthew Cassidy said the leash from his own board saved his life when he used it as a tourniquet. But he says it was the lack of a leg rope on the other board that caused the accident in the first place. Our reporter, Bruce McKenzie, has the story. The long and usually gentle waves at Watigo's beach make it a popular spot for surfers of all ages and abilities. Former pro Matthew Cassidy was out catching a few with his friends on Wednesday afternoon when he was hit by a loose longboard. Took off on a shoulder high left hander. There was a girl way down the line on the shoulder who took off after I'd been on the wave. I'd done two turns and she saw me decided that she'd keep surfing and I did a turn and she fell off and I waited about 10 metres to pull off the wave myself because I wanted to give the leg rope a chance. Turns out she didn't have a leg rope and the board threw up up under my arm and ripped through all the veins and arteries in the top part of my arm. As soon as I felt the knock, I looked down, I could see half my bicep hanging out from under my wetsuit. There was a guy right next to me and I grabbed him and said, pull my leg rope off my board, put it above where the cut is. So he did that. I think that guy stayed with me for like an hour and 20 minutes holding his tourniquet in place, which absolutely saved my life. And then people just came from everywhere to help, which was really, really good. But it was, um, there was a lot of blood. It was, I would have bled out in five minutes if it wasn't for a couple of key people down there taking really clear instructions. Matt's mate, Josh Wheatley, was in the water at the time. He says the incident highlights just how dangerous an unleashed board can be. The owner says their leg rope had broken, but it's a bit unconfirmed at the moment as to whether there was a leg rope or not. The the person was mortified as to what had uh, ensued, as to what it had caused, but that's not really... doesn't, doesn't really help, Matthew. Matt Cassidy is a respected figure in the Byron Bay surfing community and his mishap sparked a furious reaction on social media. He says there are some issues that need to be addressed, especially at crowded spots like Wadigos and The Pass. There's two parts to this conversation. Obviously, everybody should wear a leg rope. There's no argument that works for me with someone not wearing a leg rope. The other one that needs to be addressed is, particularly at Wadigos and The Pass, is this idea that people can share waves on a surfboard. And it's... It's a cultural thing in those two boats where people just don't even look inside and just take off and go. Like, there's safe places to surf until you start putting three or four people on a wave that just don't get the rules or haven't had them explained to them or just too arrogant to really care, pulling off at the end of the wave and smiling if someone doesn't put their arm back on. Former Greens MP Ian Cohen lives and surfs in the area. He's been a vocal critic of board riders who choose not to wear leg ropes. Accidents can happen, but when you have a situation where you could be wearing a leg rope, you should be wearing a leg rope, a lot of these accidents can be avoided. And I've seen so many of them. And I have friends who have uh, abruptly finished their surfing career 
uh, just as recreational surfers, uh, due to an accident with a with a stray board that uh, didn't have a leg rope. It's a fashion of the experts um, who uh, feel they're they're good enough not to need a leg rope, which I would dispute. Anyone can lose their board at any time, uh, even professional surfers. Local woman Alison Drover says it's time for a community response. I'm a swimmer, so I swim across the bay every day in Byron and I've definitely encountered boards flying loosely and I definitely think we should be wearing leg weights. But I think most importantly, this is sort of indicative of a bigger issue, which is there's so many more people in the water doing different activities. We've got kite surfing, we've got boards, we've got swimmers, we've got flight boards. And I think it's a really big opportunity soon for us as a community to develop plans but for these to be community-led so that we're not just having to be legislated because you can legislate to wear leg ropes is one thing, but actually to, to actually design a campaign that's got community engagement that really focuses on respecting and protecting not just the people in the water but also actually the environment that we're in. Bruce McKenzie reporting there from Byron Bay and there's more on that story on Australia White's webpage on abc.net.au. Now let's head to Queensland, where scientists are busy building Australia's largest reptile predator fence to protect an endangered reptile, the Yakka skink. Our reporter, Danielle Lancaster, was on the ground as the crew got to work. Deep in the heart of the Mulgolands, just outside of Charleville in southwestern Queensland, an endangered reptile is getting a helping hand. The sound of chainsaws, post-stickers and men's banter breaks the sound of birdsong and the wind through the mulga trees. It's all in the name of research, as Australia's largest reptile predator fence is erected in an attempt to help save the endangered yakka skink, a rather unique skink with some exceptional traits in the reptile world. Yakka skink researcher Stephen Peck says the yakka only found in Queensland is a most unusual lizard. So the yakka skink is a quite a large skink, up to 450 mil long. It's endemic to Queensland, but it has a whole heap of special natural history characteristics. It's social, and that is really unusual for reptiles. It's long-lived. We suspect they probably will live up to 30 years old. Low reproduction rates, so it only has half a dozen babies a year. High site fidelity, lives at a particular site and it won't move. It, it, it'll tolerate a fair bit of disturbance and that will impact on it. It's a social species and it produces communal latrine sites as a means of communication between the individuals. Stephen Peck has been researching yakas for 15 years and he says this fence is going to be a game changer for reptile research. Well, we're on site today putting up some predator exclusion fence. This is pretty well the first time it's ever been done for an Australian reptile of this scale. And we're going to look at increasing the population, addressing population decline of the ex-skink. It's currently listed as vulnerable. It's an endemic species to Queensland. Population trend is declining. I think so this is fundamental research to address that decline. What we would like to see as a result of this fencing is more lizards surviving, moving out into the landscape and setting up new colonies and that would be a great achievement. Until this year, Merwayshire Stock Route Supervisor Blair O'Connor had never heard of a yakka, but the reptile monitoring sites are on Stock Route, so he started to take an interest. We needed to show the public that the stock routes in the common wasn't just about livestock or about landholders. We wanted to let them know it was also about conservation, it was also about recreation and things that probably don't get a lot of spotlight. So, yeah, we wanted to diversify and just sort of 
make commons and stock routes a bit more than just about livestock. I think it'll just only benefit the Shire in the sense that we've got a really, you know, we've got an endangered toll that's worth saving. And if we can just do a little bit, I think it'll, it'll pay dividends down the track, not just economic, but, you know, tourists and just the conservation side of it. Yakas are thought to live up to 30 years of age. And if their habitat gets disturbed, the lizards don't move on, leaving them vulnerable to predators. So now the Shire and scientists are working hand in hand to build an exclusion fence that is the largest of its type in Australia. What we've done is we've put up a 25 metre by 25 metre by 1.8 high mesh fence and that hopefully will exclude cats and foxes. There's plenty of space for the lizards to move in around that area. The mesh is big enough so that any dispersing lizards can get through it. They won't get caught up. Definitely don't want to impede movement between the aggregations. We've done a lot of monitoring before we did anything to the sites. Now we're doing the treatment the treatment being the fencing, and we'll now monitor it for a period of time after. Well, we'll just keep monitoring. It's important when any conservation fence, the success of those fence is the ongoing management and care of those fences, so we'll be here forever. Just hearing them close the gate there at Australia's largest reptile predator fence, and thanks to Danielle Lancaster for that story. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio. On his citrus and grape farm at Kingston-on-Murray in South Australia, Mintu Brar is an everyday grower, but on YouTube, he's an international sensation. Since moving to the Riverland in 2007, Gushminda Singh, better known as Mintu, has hosted a radio show, ran a newspaper and racked up millions of views for his channel Pendu Australia. The Punjabi Australian tells Eliza Berlich his audience is keen to learn more about life and farming in rural Australia. Actually, my show is the reality show. Every show, when I'm starting, I don't know what I have to speak. When mic's on, camera on, I start speaking. And uh, people love that thing because all my words coming from heart. Some or, or a lot of your videos are about farming. Can you tell me uh, what are some of the, the things that you've been uh, sharing about farming on your channel? Back in my country, people love, like farming and still they are doing traditional farming. But now there is their kids are educating themselves and uh, they are coming in the farming and they want new experiments. And they want a new things. They have questions. How's Australian doing citrus? How's Australian doing winery? So then I try to start the videos and showing people how I'm... Today I did the fertilizer before you. And we made that video. How we are, we are fertilizing to my grapes. People like that things. They try to do like that way in India. And they are getting success. And I'm getting everyday calls. When I'm here on the weekends, nearly five to ten people is coming to meet me just for getting experience in the farming and coming to have a chat with me, photo with me. So every weekend, 20 to 30 people is coming here. What have been some of your most popular YouTube videos? 
and there is a lots of youtube is gone very popular especially for farming but one video i made here uh, it was real incident with my neighbors and i offer my neighbors free all the food things and then they are saying why then that is story and you can see in the youtube but uh, moral of the story is the share and care i was just telling my friends uh, how we can look after our neighbors so that works really well someone download and put on the facebook whatsapp then there is millions of shares they're gone people love to when they meet me or then we, like last night two nights before i was in the cricket match in the oval everyone comes to me to have a taken photo because of that video he's a popular man it's worth checking out his youtube kingston on murray farmer and youtuber Mintu Brar speaking there with our reporter Eliza Burledge. And that's all from Australia Wide's producer Alex Hyman and I for the week. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.